Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus as he builds a movement of misfits traveling through Galilee, bringing good news to the ordinary, broken, confused, and undeserving. Who will choose to follow him? How will he react in the face of conflict? What is the good news of God's kingdom really about? Let's pick up where we left off. Well, hello, everyone. If you've been with us this fall, you know we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. So I encourage you to go ahead, grab your Bible, get your device ready, because we're moving into chapter two today. So far in chapter one, we've seen Jesus launch his ministry in the region of Galilee. Now, along with his disciples, we are following him as he travels from town to town and village to village. He's preaching in the synagogues, he's casting out demons, and he's healing people with all kinds of physical ailments. At every stop, the people, they're amazed, they're astonished, and they're so very curious. Who is this guy? Now, I told you we're in chapter two, but I actually want us to start for a minute in the last few verses of chapter one. You see, Jesus heals a leper, and then he gives him some very clear instructions. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Okay, so Jesus, he really wanted this leper to keep the news kind of close to the vest and just, you know, dude, go follow the instructions of the law, see your priest and get back to living. But no, this guy's got a story to tell. And now Jesus is being pursued by crowds. So he's staying out of towns, trying not to cause a riot everywhere he goes. Because as we'll see today, the crowds are not entirely on his side. Everyone is curious about Jesus, absolutely. But some are more skeptical, even feeling threatened. In our passage today, we get the first hint of opposition to Jesus' ministry. In fact, this is going to be the first of five successive narratives in the story that reveal who is opposing Jesus and why. Now, before we read today's story in Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, I want to set the scene. So I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of a couple of different people. I encourage you, let's be curious observers. So imagine yourself, you're, you're pressing to get closer. You want to hear every word. You're trying to catch a glimpse of the action. And today's story is taking us into Capernaum. And Jesus is in a house that scholars believe belonged to Peter. And so this town and this house, they've kind of become home base for Jesus during his ministry in Galilee. So again, imagine being there and you're trying to like squeeze in the door or just find a spot to peek in through a window. Imagine the whispers you're hearing around you. Hey, I hear he healed that leper guy outside of town. I hear he can cast out demons. Hey, he healed cousin Betty's broken arm the other day. Now, shift your attention and imagine that you're someone down the street. Maybe you're on your way to work. Maybe you're stopping by the market and you hear all this noise coming from a crowd. And there's this rumor going around that this Jesus guy is in town. And you're gripped by an idea. It's this almost crazy thought that if this guy is doing what everyone claims, then maybe, just maybe, one of your closest friends could be healed. Now, if you could just figure out how to get him close to Jesus, maybe it could turn his life around. So let's read Mark 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Are you picturing this scene? Put yourself back in the crowd, outside the house, and you see these four guys carry their paralyzed friend to the roof, and then they start digging. Now, a couple things we need to point out. First, we don't know why this man was paralyzed. It doesn't tell us. So he may have been born that way. He may have been injured in an accident. Regardless, it would have left him struggling to provide for himself and his family. There's no government programs to help him out. So he's just struggling to survive. But this guy's lucky because he has friends who care. Now, imagine you're one of those friends as you approach the house and you're caught off guard at the size of the crowd and you're just trying to make your way through, but no one wants, but everybody wants to get closer to Jesus and no one is giving up an inch, especially not these official looking religious leaders. It looks like there's no way you're going to get remotely close to Jesus. So what do you do? You shrug and say, well, better luck next time. Or do you get creative? And that brings us to the second thing, a note about roofing in the first century. Archaeologists in Capernaum have, have found that structurally most houses would not have been able to support a heavy roof. And so the wooden cross beams, they were instead overlaid with reeds, branches, dried mud, perhaps like this picture. And every fall, this would have to be removed and replaced to keep it waterproof and probably to get rid of some critters that have moved in as well. Now, back to the scene. You're a friend carrying the mat and you need to get to Jesus. And so you look up at the roof. It's not gonna be difficult to tear through and they'll have to replace it soon anyway. Now, you're about to do something a little crazy, right? But your paralyzed friend, well, he's willing to do anything to be healed. So let's go back to the story. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned them within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Whoa. Do we see what just happened here? I mean, some guys tore the roof off the house. Jesus told the paralyzed man his sins were forgiven. Then he talked to the scribes like they'd said something, but I didn't hear anything, did you? And then, and then he told the man lying on the mat to get up and walk and look at him. And you back up along with the crowd. You're parting like the Red Sea as the not lame anymore man skips by and his friends cheer from the severely compromised roof. What a sight. Is anyone going to believe you when you tell them at dinner tonight? I mean, you'd heard rumors of amazing wonders, and now you have witnessed it with your own eyes. Now, whether it takes a few hours, a few days, or a few months later, at some point, an event like this is more than a good story you tell over dinner. At some point, it stops you in your tracks. So let's stop together today, and let's reflect on what this story reveals, what it reveals to us, what it reveals about us, and then what it means for us. The first thing the story does is this. The story reveals Jesus to us. Whether you were in the crowd that day 
or you sit here today, you're a witness to Jesus in this story. We could and we should ask this very simple question every time we read the Gospels, who is Jesus? And the answer is that he will always be more than we think he is. Whether you're reading Mark for the first time, like those eyewitnesses, or you've read Mark a hundred times, it doesn't matter. That question asked with a curious and humble heart, that question will always take you deeper and wider into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons you're gonna hear us use the phrase, find your chair to encourage you to meet with God daily. Followers of Jesus, we don't graduate from reading the Bible or from prayer ever. And so every day we find that spot where our Bible sits next to a chair or a couch or a cushion on the floor and we read and we pray and we ask questions. And then we read and we pray some more. And one of the questions we ask over and over is, who are you, Jesus? Now we've only just begun to read through Mark's words, but already we're getting answers to the question, who is Jesus? Mark tells us what he believes in the very first sentence of the book. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God reveals Jesus at his baptism saying, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. And then we get Jesus himself declaring what might be the thesis statement for his whole ministry, that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Since he said these words, Jesus had, he's been acting like the son of God. He's been acting as the Messiah of the new kingdom. And everywhere he goes, his words and his actions are pointing to his authority. Jesus has demonstrated the authority to teach God's word. He's shown that he has the authority over the unseen realm, over evil, over demons. Every single healing is a sign pointing to his authority and power to heal the physical body. But right here, what we've just witnessed in this story, well, this is Jesus taking it a step further. For the first time in Mark's story, we see Jesus win the biggest battle. Because you see, Jesus knows something that the man and his friends don't know. Jesus knows that the paralyzed man desperately wants and needs healing. Yet Jesus also knows that the most serious problem in this man's life, it's not physical. Asking for healing isn't going deep enough. It's not getting to the main problem. Walking, what well, won't actually save this man's life, though it may be his deepest wish, Jesus knows the longing for physical healing won't satisfy his deepest need. It won't bring him enduring happiness. It, it's going to change his life right now, but it won't change his life forever. Every physical ailment points to a greater wound, greater disease, because greater than physical death is spiritual death. And only the forgiveness of sins can heal that problem. Now, up until today, with every teaching and sign and wonder, Jesus has been establishing his authority, but today you are the witness to a new thing. Now, you came today because you'd heard rumors of signs and wonders. You came today because you hoped to see something amazing. You came because you're curious, who is this Jesus guy? You came today and you saw a lame man walk, but you also saw Jesus confront the big problem inside all of us. Now, seemingly unfazed at the sight of the roof ripped open and a man lowered down, Jesus responds to the faith of the man and his friends. He doesn't give the man what he wants right away. He first gives him what he needs. He looks him in the eye and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I'll bet you could hear a pin drop. The man was stunned. The friends were stunned and no one spoke a word. And in that silence, Jesus heard the hearts of the religious leaders in the room. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Great question. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. 
What you are witnessing is unprecedented. No sane man has ever so boldly claimed to do what Jesus has just done. Forgiveness requires, it requires repentance and bringing the right sacrifice. Forgiveness is mediated through the priests and forgiveness comes down to God's mercy. The Jewish people learned to lean on God's promises of mercy and forgiveness in the Old Testament. Promises like Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. And from Psalm 79. Help us, O God of our salvation. Help us for the glory of your name. Save us and forgive our sins for the honor of your name. And Daniel 9, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act for, our, for your own sake. Do not delay. O my God, for your people and your city, bear your name. And here stands this, this man, and he's claiming to be able to forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Jesus has just shocked them speechless. A great prophet might heal a lame man. God had given that power to prophets in the Old Testament, but no prophet was so brazen as this. No mere prophet would claim the power and the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has just stepped it up a notch, and the jaws have hit the floor. So without the scribes saying a word, Jesus hears their hearts. And without Jesus having had to say the words, he has made it clear who he is. He is the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus is the I Am, the one who was and is and is to come. He was before time began, the creator of the world. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of the greatest story ever told. Jesus is God and he has the power to forgive sins. Now, if that was the whole story, it's a powerful one, but it doesn't end there. In response to the scribe's unspoken challenge, Jesus just, well, blows the roof off. I mean, it kind of already was off, but you get what I mean. This is a major mic drop moment. He says, starting in verse eight, he asks them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus sees into the hearts of these men. He's been living and walking and breathing among men and women that he created, and he knows how we roll, right? He knows it's far easier to say something than to do something, that it's far easier to act the part than to be who you say you are. But in Jesus' case, what he speaks is always truth, and what he speaks is always affirmed by what he does. He doesn't merely act like he's the son of God. He is the son of God. And so this story, when lined up side by side with all the other stories that we have about Jesus, it backs this up that he is who he says he is because he's revealing it through his actions time and again. So yeah, words can be cheap, but not Jesus' words. And this man's sins, well, they are forgiven. And hey, religious leaders, scribes, just so you're sure what you just heard and just so you're sure that he has that authority, this guy is going to go ahead and walk out of here and show you. I'm guessing his friends were going nuts. And the lame now walking man, he's fist bumping and high-fiving. I'm also guessing that these guys went back and had some long conversations into the night about healing and forgiveness. And this friend, he's not just whole on the outside. He's been made whole on the inside. He's walking, but he's also living, like really living. He's not held back by a lame leg and he's not held back by guilt and shame. So what did this mean for every witness this day? What did it mean for us? What does it mean for you? 
Jesus came to town that day to meet that lame man's deepest need. This lame man, whose friends were brave and strong and persistent, he is the first to receive what is now available to you and me and our friends and neighbors and family. It's the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus has the power and the authority to heal your body, that's true. But even greater, Jesus came to this earth to meet your deepest need. Because he's the son of God, he has the authority to set you free. From addiction, from relational pain, from your past, from idolatry, you are free from sin and shame in his name. So this story is revealing something to us. It's revealing who Jesus is. Because he's God, he's got the power to forgive, and that means something for us that we can be forgiven, set free from sin, set free to truly live. And that leads us to what the story reveals about us. So what is different about the crowd in this story is that we're getting a glimpse of the different responses to Jesus. Some respond with curiosity, some with skepticism, and some with faith. So let's start with the crowds and their curiosity. We made the observation earlier that Jesus gave the leper clear instructions not to tell anyone, but the guy blabbed to everybody. And now Jesus is surrounded by crowds wherever he goes, like the T-Swift Eras tour of that day. Jesus was drawing record numbers and crashing Ticketmaster and selling out venues and crowds are overflowing into the streets. Now I'm sure some of these are devoted diehard OG fans. I'm also suspicious that a lot of them are just caught up in the hype. They're just curious to see what it's all about. Maybe they're just the parents bringing their preteens. Maybe they're just the other friends recruited to carry a corner of a mat. But seeing is believing, right? And as the word spreads about Jesus, the people are coming to see. It remains to be seen how many will believe. So we've got this general crowd of people. And of course, every popular movement also draws its shares of skeptics and scoffers. So you can ask T. Swift, you can ask the students at Asbury Seminary. Since that serpent caused Eve to doubt God in the garden, we humans are not so easily convinced. So in this crowd, packed in and around Peter's house, we find skepticism. It's not verbalized, but it's there. And notice that the scribes who came to see Jesus, found, they found front row seats in the house. They're curious, but not with the open-minded kind of curios- curiosity. They're curious because they don't believe what everyone is seeing. And one of the most fascinating things about this is that they aren't outsiders, they're insiders. These aren't Romans or Gentiles who are showing up to check on Jesus. These are Jewish leaders. We'll see Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. They're all expecting the Messiah. And again and again throughout the book of Mark, these leaders are mentioned, well, not just in Mark, all the gospel accounts as skeptical witnesses who show up in the crowds. We're going to see a lot more of this as we keep reading. And we're going to see them get a lot more vocal about it. For now, they're just thinking those thoughts, questioning in their hearts. Now let me briefly describe a scribe for you. These men, they were highly honored and revered for their study and their knowledge of the law. They've rolled and unrolled the scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures many times. They've got large portions entirely memorized. And their interpretations of the law are very important. In fact, the law really only mattered to the common people in as much as it was interpreted by these guys. So in that way, they're a little like the justices of the Supreme Court. And I imagine that even if they had arrived late to this party, the crowd let these guys move right to the front. The disciples may have seen them coming and been a little intimidated, but not Jesus. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus holds all the authority of heaven and earth. These scribes believe they're coming to observe and evaluate Jesus' authenticity 
And Jesus, well, he's about to evaluate their hearts. We all know who comes out on top. But why are these scribes so worked up? Before we answer that, we need to let the story reveal one more response, and that's faith. This is a word we use all the time. We use it often to sum up the entirety of our Christian beliefs in life. We talk about living a life of faith and being on a faith journey and walking by faith. Hebrews 11 gives us a, a good definition. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen is not made out of things that are visible. I really like the NIV translation says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And this is what the friends demonstrated, right? The crowds watched what they were doing with curiosity and the scribes in the house looked on with skepticism at their audacity. But the friends and the guy on the mat, well, they were crazy enough to believe. They were crazy enough to be confident in what they hoped for. Like Abraham, Abraham who, was, who followed God into an unknown land and believed God for promises that would never, he would never get to see fulfilled. Or like Ruth, who followed Naomi and into an unknown land and believed that her God and her people were their only hope for a future. Like Daniel, who was forced into exile to serve foreign kings, who did so confident that God would bring his people back home in due time. It's the lesson God was teaching his people after the Exodus while they wandered in the wilderness. He provided manna every day for just that day. If you tried to save it, it got really gross. God was teaching his newly freed people how to have faith. He's saying, be confident in me to provide the bread that you are hoping for. Be certain of what you don't yet see. Because if I, your God, have promised, then I will fulfill my promise. And so God has promised this, these people a Messiah one who will free the captives and give sight to the blind and bring the favor of the Lord. And yes, one who will heal the lame. So these friends, they carry that mat in faith. They climb the steps in faith. They dig a hole in the roof in faith. They lower the man to Jesus in faith. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see. You know what we humans love? We love certainty. Whether we're on the right or we're on the left or we're red or blue or rainbow or dispensationalist or legalist or atheist, atheist or Pharisee or scribe, we all look for certainty at every turn because being right about all the things means everything. And our drive to be certain, it fuels our searching and streaming and downloading. It fueled the scribes rolling and unrolling and reading and memorizing and studying. Certainty also fuels our stubbornness, our pride, and our arrogance. You know what being right about everything doesn't do? Doesn't fuel our faith. It doesn't bring us humbly to our knees in the presence of a holy God. It doesn't humble our hearts in the face of God's sovereignty. It doesn't remind us that out of nothing he created everything. We could be just like the scribes in this story certain that we know and understand. And so we end up missing the only thing that is truly certain. God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In that moment, his forgiveness what shattered the scribes' expectations and their certainty. Jesus' forgiveness doesn't align with their sure and certain interpretations of all those scrolls, and that blinds them to the truth that they're witnessing right in front of them. 
Guys, God cannot be reduced to our levels of understanding. He will not be contained by our certainty. When we're confronted by the truth of Jesus, our single best response is faith confidence in what we hope for and certainty in the presence of the one who knows everything about everything, past, present, and future. More than that, he's holding all of it together. Now, as we continue to journey through Mark, we're gonna, we're gonna continue to see these crowds and they're gonna be curious and they're gonna be amazed, but at other times, Jesus is gonna say some crazy stuff and those crowds will scatter. Even at the cross, there's only gonna be a handful of followers present. Because you see, curiosity is like candy. It's thrilling in the moment, but the thrill will fade. And skepticism is like a drug. You're never truly satisfied. No matter how much you see, you just cannot believe. But faith, faith is like one of those green smoothies. Not flashy, not fun. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to swallow, but you can be confident that it is at work in you to bring out the best through you. And the friends in this story, they had enough faith to take a risk and tear the roof off that house. The paralyzed man, he had enough faith to do something crazy and stand up and walk. And the scribes, well, they had enough faith to walk away. So what does this mean for you? It means you must make a decision about Jesus. How will you respond to him? Do you have enough faith to come and fall in his feet, believing that he's got the power and authority to meet your deepest need, to forgive your every sin, to bring you healing on the inside and outside? Like the father that we're going to read about in Mark 9, do you have enough faith to humbly cry out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief? As we work through Mark, we're, we're dialing in on these key themes and we're structuring our next steps around those themes. Those themes can be found on our web page. Now, I could have chosen from a couple of themes today. For example, the faith of the friends, it certainly lands them in the ordinary heroes theme. And maybe you're a friend who needs, maybe you have a friend who needs you to be an ordinary hero. But I really want all of us to consider the question under the Son of God, Son of Man theme. How does this picture of Jesus compel me to live differently? We've said it before, we're going to say it again. You can't just walk away from Jesus without considering who he is and what he's done. You cannot see what we saw today and not do anything with this question. Everything revealed by just this one story today, it's enough to change your life. And I don't mean just your commitment to Sunday church life. I'm talking about your whole life. I'm talking about your Monday through Saturday life, your nine to five life, your college life, your friend life, your mom life, married life, financial life, dating life, thought life, your whole entire life. How does this picture of Jesus compel you and me to live differently in every minute of everyday life? If we will take that question with us, if we will allow God to speak to us, you and I, we're gonna be changed. And this church is going to be changed. This region and this city will be changed. Maybe God give us the faith to believe it and see it. Amen.